Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmark, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA owned and operated for over 40 years. Yeah, so very good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Drive, all thanks to Toolmart, the complete tool centre. I was rummaging through today wondering, what's the big story of today? You know what I came up with? There's not much happening. It's still bubbling over what's happening in rugby league. We're still, uh, the other story regarding Dave Warner, who's turned his back on the Big Bash. But primarily, it's uh, we're all waiting for tomorrow night to see who rocks up for the West Coast Eagles and the Fremantle Dockers in this weekend's AFL. How Manly will go tomorrow night in the National Rugby League match with seven players out. And probably, as I said, I had it as focused last night as one of the major stories. Well, today there's been some developments where the Manly Seagull players who are boycotting their club's game tomorrow night now won't attend the match for security reasons. Now, those seven players who won't feature against the Sydney Roosters over the club's decision to wear an LGBTQIA-themed jersey, Manly will become the first NRL club in history to run out in that kit, and it was expected the boycotting players would then just simply sit in the stands. But the development today says they won't attend due to the club's fear of crowd violence or antisocial behaviour that may be directed towards them. So that's the latest twist to it all. So they will need to stay home. They will watch the match on television and they won't have any part in what transpires tomorrow night. And one thing for sure, if Manly win, it'll just be incredible because they are scratching at the moment to field a side. Seven players out of a rugby league side is a significant debt. It's not like seven out of an AFL side, but you've got 18 players plus four uh, on the bench. So we'll have to wait and see what transpires there. The other big news is money talks, doesn't it? And Australian cricket uh, star David Warner has reportedly turned his back on the Big Bash League as the Big Bash League try to get big names this summer after what's transpired over the last few years where the profile of the BBL has somewhat waned. So instead of playing BBL reportedly, he's seeking permission to participate in a newly established T20 competition in the subcontinent. Now, earlier this month, as we found out, South Africa officially withdrew from a three-match ODI series against the Aussies in January. And, of course, one of those games was going to be here at the Wacker, but now we've uh, been rescheduled a match against England, meaning the country's international stars will be available for the second half of the BBL. But as reported by The Australian today, Warner has instead requested to play in the UAE's new T20 League this January, once again snubbing the Big Bash. Now, the UAE tournament is understood to be offering three-year contracts worth $2.1 million Australian for participants. And Warner, who led the Sunrisers Hyderabad in the Indian Premier League for several years, is banned at this stage from any captaincy position in the BBL due to his role in the infamous Cape Town ball tampering saga. And I reckon Dave Warner's attitude at the moment is, bugger you. You're not going to give me uh, an opportunity to maybe do what I've always wanted to do is to lead a side here in Australia in some shape or form. I'll just seek 
the fame, fortune and riches of uh, overseas competitions. So it looks like he's heading to the UAE. Later on in the program, we've got a couple of uh, special guests. I'll be speaking to Michelangelo Rucci. Will Ken Hinckley be coaching Port Adelaide next year? It was quite intriguing, really, when you saw at the front of the Port Adelaide headquarters, someone had posted a sign suggesting sack Hinckley. How strong is that wave amongst the power supporters? Michelangelo Rucci will join us. He'll also give us his thoughts on Adelaide and where they're at and also his thoughts on some of the uh, rule changes and where the AFL sits currently. And also I'll ask him questions uh, from afar, how he sees uh, Fremantle's tilt at maybe a top four spot this season. And later on also I'll be speaking to Michael Roberts, the CEO of the West Australian Football Commission. And the first question I'll ask him is how far away are they from locking away the WAFL Grand Final venue. So that's all coming up later on. Before we take a break and come back with Michelangelo Rucci, uh, Nick Kyrgios's preparations for next month's US Open have been dealt a blow with the Aussie forced to withdraw from the Atlanta Open due to injury. Now, as we know, he lost to the Wimbledon final to Novak Djokovic earlier this month. However... He was ruled out. He decided to bow out of the Atlanta Open due to injury, but he went on on court to apologise to the people that had come to see him play. Yeah, first of all, I just want to say I'm extremely shattered that I'm not able to compete tonight. Um, I've won this tournament once, and, you know, I'm playing probably some of the best tennis of my career, and all I wanted to do was come out here and give you guys a show, obviously just see what I was capable of, but I'm unable to give out my best performance today, and... Um, I'm just extremely sorry, but I'm going to you know, keep my hopes up and maybe be able to continue doubles with Fanasi this week. But I hope you all not be too hard on me. But, you know, I was going to come out here and, and see you guys face to face to tell you that I love you guys. And hopefully next year in singles, I'll be able to compete and give it my all. So I appreciate it. Yeah, good on you, Nick. Well done. So he went out on court and apologised after having a holiday in the Bahamas. He looked nice and relaxed and very tanned. And, of course, from the Bahamas to Atlanta in Florida, it's not too far. So there you go. That's Nick Kyrgios. And before I take a break, actually, if you want to look at – we had a a lot of soccer action here at Optus Stadium on the weekend. If you want to see that one of the most sensational goals that have ever been scored on a soccer pitch, have a look at the England versus Sweden – Women's Euro 2022 semi-final. The Lionesses, as they are known, beat Sweden 4-0 in the semi in front of a packed house at Sheffield and are through to the final. Have a listen on how the commentator describes this goal that was scored by England. Looking for Kirby, chance for England here. Pulls it back, Russo, save the goalkeeper. And a goal! One of the goals of the tournament, one of the goals of any tournament. Alessia Russo has backheeled it and given England a 3 0 lead. That is stupendous. Well, you'll never, ever, ever see anything like that. I saw it and it was just so smart. So, what happened? Russo has had a shot, the keeper has saved it. 
It's rolled back out to her path. She's got the back to goal. The keeper thought uh, she had done enough. And then she's backheeled it. And I've actually kicked the cupboard here. She's backheeled it. And it's gone between the goalkeeper's legs into the back of the net. It is quite a sensational goal. And as you can hear from the commentators, uh, they went to ape over it as well. But England are through to the final of the Euro 22 final in the uh, Women's European Championships. We'll take a break, come back with more in a moment. Uh, Michael Angiorucci will join us next. As I mentioned, Michael Roberts, the CEO of the uh, WA Footy Commission, will join us a bit later on as well. It's eight past five. We're here for Toolmart, the complete tool centre, where you get the right tool from the start. This is Drive with Peter Vlahos. The Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmart, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA owned and operated for over 40 years. Yes, the Roach, Michelangelo Rucci from Adelaide joins us shortly. Uh, Keith from Broome's listening in. He's texting on the Tempera Bedshed text line. Good on you, Keith. I, uh, my sister-in-law's up there. She texted me last night, 34 degrees and sunny. Lucky ducks up there in Broome. He says, so how does Warner expect to be considered a leader of a national team? Baffling Peter. That's Keith from Broome. And on the uh, Scarborough Toyota open line at 13.12.55, Paul joins us. Hey, Paul, how are you going? Yeah, very well, Peter. I normally ring when Kim's around, but uh, yeah, I'm glad you've rung me. Took... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've rung me when Kim's not here. I might be able to have, get a say in because Kim just dominates it when he's <laughs> here talking to you. So the uh, the the issue I, I see it as that there's there's just too many competitions picking their own their own windows. I think there needs in the, in, with 2020 cricket these domestic competitions there needs to be some. So, some control over them all where every every country's entitled to have it in in their sort of summer period, if you like. But with a certain window and everyone's told, look, this is your five weeks, this is your six weeks, whatever, you get your competition done in that period of time and there won't be competition for players. We're in, we're in a ridiculous situation here where we've got the UAE, we've got South Africa, we've got us with our BBL all on at the same time. If David Warner's going to get 700 for a year for playing, in the UAE and probably, probably what, 300 here. Mm. He's only got a few years of cricket left. I mean, what, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. if, everyone would go for the, for the extra money. You know, was, as much as we want to blame him and, and, and with some justification, you'd, you'd think the years of Australian cricket's put into him, it's probably time to give something back. But if you can, if you can get an extra, extra 400 for your family or yourself, why wouldn't you? Yeah. I'd, well, he's got, I, I'd, it, it, I'd like to think he can stay, but... Yeah, he's got plenty at the but moment. Does, Don't worry about work. that. He's got plenty and he's made a lot out of cricket. And But in the end, in the end, how do you decide what decision Dave Warner makes? I think he'll always play test cricket. That is uh, certainly the last bastion where, of course, I think if he ever turned his back on test cricket and played T20 purely for the money, I think he'd be absolutely criticised heavily. But when it comes to this sort of scenario, I just feel... What do you do? What do you do? I, I, he's chasing, he's in, basically, this is his retirement fund. This is his superannuation. But I reckon deep down inside, you know what he said, I reckon, Paul? Bugger you. You know, you've restricted an opportunity for me to maybe, like he did in the IPL, he was captain of the Sunrisers Hyderabad. You're not allowing me, even though I've got an opportunity possibly to captain a BBL side. Well, if you don't want me, maybe someone else does. And I just reckon he's... He's taken that attitude. That's only my opinion on it all, you know. Well, so, did you did you notice that Fafti Fassi's put himself into our draft at the same time that the uh, 
South African competition is on, and yeah. that's obviously not good for South African cricket. So, you know, we've, we've got one going out and one coming in. I mean, you'd think that out of respect for all these major cricketing countries, they should have their own window which doesn't clash with anyone else. Yeah, no, fair call, Paul. And I reckon we could discuss it all day. And uh, I appreciate your comments and I respect your comments. And I think uh, you're not right or wrong, mate. Thanks for that. And Hags looks forward to your call tomorrow night. <laughs> Good on you. Paul of Gozzi's uh, joins us. Okay, uh, 16 past five. He's been waiting patiently online. Uh, we're speaking to Michelangelo Rucci, of course, uh, the co-host of The Run Home in Adelaide and former highly respected journalist. Uh, Rooch, a very good evening to you. Always a pleasure. Anyone who calls me a gentleman deserves my time, so there you are. Uh, he is a gentleman in more ways than one, is Ken Hinckley. Always conducts himself very well, the Port Adelaide coach. I tell you what, it's a bit of a bumpy ride for him at the moment, particularly when fans post signs on billboards suggesting he needs to go. Yeah, the Sack Hinckley campaign, which has been going on for some time, which is a, just a reflection on when you raise expectation, and we know that Port Adelaide put on this agenda that they'd win three flags in five years, and you also come from a football club that has a supporter base that pretty well used to order champagne every year because they play in a grand final every second year, win a flag every second year, or win them on a trot. To be without what we call the ultimate success since 2004 at any level, the AFL or even the Sanford where their traditions are, the you know, the frustration builds. And what is most notable is that they had great hopes after being preliminary finals for two consecutive years that they were going to take the next step. Well, we know what AFL footy is about. You know, it's a big mountain and sometimes you get close to the summit and if you just don't get better, you quickly fall. Now, 0-5 start put Port Adelaide in an enormous hole. Um, but what I keep reflecting on is I've seen a lot of football teams that have bad starts and then disintegrate, which becomes you know, a question of, well, what sort of group were they? What was the coach doing? Does the coach become too stubborn and just pushes on with a failed system? Whereas what I've seen at Port Adelaide is, and I've said it repeatedly and I know I get... You know, trolled by a few people who so say, how can you say that? But Ken Inkley's actually coaching better this year than he ever has in any of the other years that he's been here at Port Adelaide. Now, what we saw at 0-5 and five was a coach that actually thought something's got to change, whether it be him, whether it be his game plan, whether it be his players. Now, other AFL coaches have noted that Port Adelaide has played differently since 0-5. and five. Uh, there's enough players and enough assistant coaches who will tell us that at 0-5, and five, Ken Inkley put new things on the table to make Port Adelaide better. And their results since then are, well, you know, they've got to, you know, 8 and 10, 11th spot, not where they want to be, but they've been so incredibly competitive against, you know, those teams that are ranked above them. They've got enormous results like we saw on the weekend where, you know, they get into a hole, kick eight goals in the third term, lose by two goals, which is pretty well the story of their year, where they're competitively close, but they're just not, you know, getting to the to the wins. So they're good. They're not great. And they've got a coach who's worked very hard to make them better. It's interesting. So he's been linked with the likes of GWS, which he's refutely denied a few weeks ago. He's been there almost a decade. People are saying eventually a coach needs to move on. We saw it with Alistair Clarkson and so-called the succession plan with Sam Mitchell. Is King Hinckley's time up or can he reinvent himself? 
Well, technically, his time's not up by his contract. His contract looked to next year. Is his time up by the way he's coaching in the sense that, you know, uh, I've seen other coaches in this town, and the most notable one was Neil Craig. Where I, I thought Neil Craig was a very, very good coach for Adelaide. He was unlucky not to get a flag in those years when they went ding-dong with West Coast. But at the end, you know, when you get players at press conferences declaring they were bored, when you get 100-point losses, you knew then that the time was up. That was when Neil Craig fell on his sword. Well, we're not having any example of where you've got Port Adelaide players declaring they want out of Port Adelaide because they're bored of being here or don't think that Ken Inglis is the man who should be coaching them. We don't see 100-point losses. They had one bad one this year, which was against Hawthorne, but you know, put that as the outlier. Generally, they've been, you know, super competitive. Even if they haven't won the games against, the, you know, the top eight clubs bar Sydney. So I, I just don't see where the time is up. It's it's pretty well the moment Port has that Geelong had with Mark Thompson and Richmond had with Damien Hardwick. It's do you believe that the program is solid, so you continue with it, or do you actually go with, you know, what some people are saying? Well, maybe it's time for a different voice. I'm, I'm more leaning to if the program's fine and the coach is actually showing that he's innovative, if the players are prepared to play, as we saw they did after half-time when they were in real trouble against Geelong, I would suggest you leave him to, you know, see out his contract and mm. see what happens this time next year. Now, people say, well, it's 10 years. Yeah, I understand it's 10 years. There's a few other clubs around the around the nation that would say that it's a long, long haul to getting a premiership. And, yeah, 18 teams, one winner. But is it just a league where you only have one winner every year? Can we look at other clubs and say, yeah, they're actually progressing to a point whereby they've had some success this year, even if they haven't got a premiership trophy? It's interesting what you say regarding 100-point losses. Of course, uh, the big brand here is West Coast Eagles, and they were yeah. hammered with 100-point losses repeatedly in the first half of the season. Mm. And they're saying there was extenuating circumstances with COVID and, of course, injury yep. concerns and all that. But saying that, from afar, how do you view the West Coast Eagles? Adam Simpson is at the moment in place until the end of 2025 mm. and seems very comfortable in his own skin. Uh, from afar, mm. have you seen... The Eagles' performance is acceptable with only two wins? No, I would say that it's a far drop from what I know of what West Coast should stand for. But they're now, in my eyes, a victim of decisions you make at list management, which you know, if you don't go to the draft often enough, you don't bring in enough youth, you don't keep injecting good talent into your side, but young talent or proven talent, you'll go stale and you'll fall away. I mean, there's enough examples over a long, long time of clubs that make bad decisions at list management. And Adelaide here in South Australia is going through that as well, whereby they're in a massive rebuild because of bad decisions they made at list management. And West Coast has got the same thing. They've got to now look at themselves and say, where where was their recruiting strategy? Where was their list management strategy? And what did they actually put on the plate so that Adam Simpson could actually deliver a second premiership under his watch? So... There's a fair few questions West Coast need to have a look at in terms of their football program. And if they're not asking them themselves, they're failing in keeping that football club where it should be. Mm. Michael Angelo saying you've mentioned Adelaide Crows. There's been comments made today after what was quite a, an incredible weekend that the game is in great shape. Uh, we know that the Jack Ginevan 
incident across the weekend was a major talking point yesterday. Uh, and there's been a few other issues bubbling around when it comes to the AFL. Now, we're in Western Australia, South Australia. It seems all the dialogue that the game's in great shape comes out of Victoria. What's your spin on where the AFL sits at the moment? Oh, well, there's, there's always the question of the game on and off the field. Um, off the field, I've been most concerned about it taking its eye off what football is to be the moral compass of Australia. I, I get concerned when I see an AFL commission that doesn't have a football-related person. I mean, they've got great people on that commission, you know, great you know, leaders of you know their patches of society, whether it be in law or... Uh, social equality and all that sort of stuff, but we don't have anyone who's got a football background who, you know, like we've seen too often in the past, if you actually take your eye off the footy, you well, you're not actually doing the right thing by your game. Now, the game itself has had all sorts of issues this year where it's had you know, mixed messages from AFL House, that issue of umpire dissent that was strong at the beginning now seems to have disappeared. Maybe they'll say they've won that battle to make it cleaner on the field. The, we get too many moments where we don't understand what's happening in ruck contests when the umpire blows his whistle. So, I mean, there's some issues there. But the biggest one of all is actually drawing people back to the game. We've had two years, certainly difficult in Melbourne, whereby people couldn't go to the game, found new ways to watch it, now are concerned about returning the game, whether it be by COVID or simply because they found a different way to watch it. So we've got some big challenges and, and big questions still to be answered in the next month as to whether we go to 19s with Tasmania. What happens with an 18-team AFLW when we're seeing players wanting to become more and more professional in terms of you know time and the game and their pay scale? But the one thing I do know is that if you can... You know, dig up some old linoleum in a, an old house and find an old newspaper. There were always questions about where Australian football's been at. But I'm told from many people from long, long ago, it's such a great game. No matter how many times we try to stuff it up, we don't break it. Mm. Yeah, fair call. Is Geelong the team to run down now? How do you see uh, as we head towards a real business end of the season? It's round 20 this weekend, and we've only got a few home and away fixtures mm. to go before the finals kick in in September. It just seems to me that Geelong is slowly but surely just creeping away from the rest. Yeah, I mean, we've got a, a league where everyone's jockeying, aren't they? They're just trying to find their position when they go to the real starting gates. It's September. You know, Geelong always put themselves in a great position, but they don't have the ultimate finals record of recent time. And Brisbane's a classic case of another one that, you know, doesn't have a super record in September. I, I think what we're learning about this year, and particularly when we get the uncertainty of the COVID pandemic, and no one's going to stop finals because a team suddenly loses four players to the COVID rules, uh, you're going to need to be at your very best in September, not in August, not in July. Mm. So is Geelong with their two power forwards, and you saw them firsthand against Port Adelaide yeah. last weekend. Is that going to make a significant difference uh, if Hawkins and Cameron get their act together? Of course, Stengel, who you know very well, came from Adelaide. He's mm -hmm. been a, a revelation this season. Is that the difference? I would think there would be a lot of people around the competition wanting to get that game at Adelaide Oval on their video or laptops or whatever and have a look at the third quarter and ask... How did Port Adelaide actually stop Geelong for 30 minutes? So, no team's perfect. No team's got you know an unbeatable system. Even the great Brisbane team that won three flags in a row could be defeated at times. So, 
you know, look, they're impressive, Geelong, but I wouldn't say that they're the team I go and put my mortgage on and say that's paid <laughs> off on October 1 because they're going to win the flag. That's not that certain this year, that's for sure. And finally, Fremantle, Kim Hagdorn, who you know very well, and myself, uh, he joins us on a Monday night for the Drive program. Uh, we're both convinced if Frio can't get over Melbourne on Friday night, there's probably no hope of them finishing in top four. We're still a bit concerned about their forward half. Are they a top four side in your eyes? I thought they'd be one of the big teams of this year. Um, yeah, I thought they'd contend for the top four because I just like the progress they've made under Justin Longmuir. Um, yeah, top four, we've always said for some time you need to be in the top four to win it, but we've had so many examples. You know, that, oh, we always bring up the Western Bulldogs from what was it, six or sevens. I, I wouldn't be... I wouldn't be concerned to the point of, you know, Fremantle lost to Melbourne that I'd write them off because I still think there's a lot of things to unfold in September and you've just you've got to be at the right place and play your best footy at the right time. And I've seen Adelaide do it in 97, 98 when they weren't the best team in the home and away series, but they were the best team in September. Just, you know, never, never discount what happens in this game. We've seen so many surprise moments that I wouldn't be writing off Fremantle by one result, not at all. Mm. Michelangelo, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here on My Drive program. I hear yours is going from strength to strength with Kimbo there in South Australia. And we'll keep in touch uh, in weeks to come, particularly with the finals just around the corner. I do look forward to it. Michelangelo Rucci, a real authoritarian when it comes to South Australian uh, football and sport. And it's great to have him on the program to talk about Ken Hinckley. He's very... Solid that Ken Hinckley should continue at the Port Adelaide Football Club, even though some supporters are getting a bit rabid in relation to where the current power coach sits and maybe saying it's time to move on. And Michelangelo certainly gave us his thoughts and also his thoughts on the West Coast Eagles and Fremantle and where the AFL sits at the moment. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more on the other side of the break here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. It's all brought to you thanks to Toolmart, the complete tool centre where you get the right tool. From the start. The Drive Show with Peter Vlahos. Toolmark, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA owned and operated for over 40 years. Yeah, it's great to have your company on this Wednesday midweek. Of course, tomorrow night, footy team selections night. Kim Hagdon will join me in the studio. We'll analyse the teams and what's likely to happen in round 20 of the AFL, a big Friday night here at Optus Stadium with Fremantle taking on Melbourne. Unfortunately, it may be a trifle wet as it was very wet last weekend with all the activity here at Optus as well. A man that certainly has done a significant job since taking over as CEO of the West Australian Football Commission. I'm not going to try and think how long he's been in the chair, but it might be just over 12 months, you'll probably say it's uh, longer than that because time does fly. Michael Roberts joins us here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. Michael, thanks for your time. Oh, good evening, Peter. How are you going? So how long have you been in the CEO's chair? Yeah, 18 months. So 18 not too months. too far wrong, but uh, yeah, it does, uh, does fly, absolutely. Unbelievably, it does fly. I can't believe that the uh, footy season is coming to a conclusion. July's nearly done, of course, August, and then we're into finals during the course of September. Saying that, uh, speaking of finals, even though the waffle then leaks into the first week of October, I think the question I need to ask you right at the top, 
Unfortunately, Optus Stadium cannot house the WAFL Grand Final, yet any closer to deciding which venue that may be. Yeah, look, I mean, that was extremely disappointing for us, just to sort of clarify, um, you know, we we had the date of the 1st of October locked in, and then unfortunately with the the move or the introduction of the Australia-England series or T20 matches, so early October as well just doesn't give us enough or the venue enough time. So uh, we, we get uh, sort of bumped a bit by uh, major international events coming in. But uh, we went back to all of our waffle clubs and, and um, said, you know, what do you want to do? We, we've got options to, to look at of, of condensing seasons and things like this. And uh, in the end, everyone said, let's, let's keep the integrity of the competition and the fixtures and, uh, and open it up to our clubs to say, uh, as an EOI, who wants to host? Uh, and who might be suitable for hosting. So we opened that up um, uh, late last week. Uh, we've given the clubs and, and councils until the 5th of August, and then we'll make a decision early the following week on where the uh, 2022 Waffle Grand Final will be held. Has there been quite a few expressions of interest without you know, identifying any? I gather there'd be South Fremantle. I gather it could be Subiaco jointly with East Perth at Leadable. It could be West Perth. Have you had quite a few expressions of interest? Oh look, I think most clubs want to. Um, you know, the reality is we've got to we've got to look at the the facilities that best suit um, our needs in terms of providing maximum attendance, um, good facilities for not just the players but also spectators. And I think um, we've made a conscious decision to say it is disappointing. I mean, we put so much effort into um, the Optus Stadium Grand Final last year, and to get thirty thousand people there was a a huge effort and great recognition of where we think Waffle can be. Um, so we don't want to go backwards too far on that. We want to make sure that, again, knowing that our, our crowd's probably going to be about half that, that uh, we just really want to focus on spectator experience and, and doing things probably not seen before at a Waffle uh, Grand Final because, uh, you know, we, we realise we've got to make it uh, something special. So. Yeah. Most clubs who, who have that sort of 12 to 15, 12 to 16,000 um, capacity, uh, we're pretty sure we'll put into this and uh, then it'll be up to us just to work through which one's more suited. Okay, good stuff. That's the latest in the grand final venue. We'll probably know in the second week of August. Uh, a story regarding Matt Parker, who, as we know, was taken in the mid-season draft, picked up by Richmond, has decided for family reasons with his partner and three kids to come back home immediately and will probably play some games for South Fremantle. Uh, the commission is looking at Matt Parker's scenario, unique scenario at the moment. What's likely to play out regarding him and playing football back here in Perth? Yeah, look, it is a unique situation. Um, there is a process going on at the moment with, um, I guess, papers being presented to our Football Affairs Committee. Um, so we'll know the outcome of that in the next, I'd say, 48 hours. Um, but, you know, obviously you've got players like this coming, or players like Matt coming back, um, as I said, it's, it's very unique coming back late in the season. Uh, we have rules in place around, you know, players just entering who aren't contracted. We also want to you know, make sure that uh, players like this have opportunities to play. So it'll be an interesting uh, discussion with, with footy affairs, but, um, you yeah, know, that'll be known. Uh, the outcome of that will be known in the next 48 hours. You'd think he'll play some football. He'd be keen to play. South would be keen to house him. The big question is, naturally, South are likely to play finals, then uh, you'd have to certainly play a certain amount of games to qualify for finals, wouldn't you, Michael? Yes, well, that's the rule that we have with our AFL-aligned clubs. So AFL-aligned clubs you know, can't just drop back their, their AFL players in the final series. So 
this is part of the, uh, I guess, the decision and the deliberation that we, we have to have because that current rule is that uh, AFL list of players coming back for Alliance clubs, they have to play six games to qualify and two of the last eight. Uh, well, we've only got five games left. So, you know, there is a... While, while it, it, it does seem um, like it would be great to have um, Matt coming back and playing for South Frio, um, you know, there are rules around it and the, the integrity of the competition is always something that we need to uphold. Mm. But uh, as I said, you know, there's discussions that will have uh, take place over the next two days. Uh, a lot of people are listening to this chat. We've got Paul who's uh, SMS me from Margaret River because the drive show goes right through the southwest of through the goldfields uh, as well, Michael. He says, can you please ask your guest, Michael, if the WA Football Commission considered removing the remaining buys from the fixture, bringing the grand final forward one week and playing it at Optus maybe on a Friday night, uh, broadcasting it to the nation in a traditional Friday night uh, football time slot. Was that considered at all? Absolutely. Uh, we, we went through look, look, bringing it forward one week or two weeks. Um, you know, we, the, the one week moving it forward again was still tight for the venue. So uh, their preference, uh, and I guess when they say their preference, it means you're out, uh, means that it wasn't an option. Um, I think there's a, a Waffle W Derby that's happening on the Thursday night um, prior to the AFL Grand Final. And I think that's where they draw the line of um, football being played at Optus Stadium. So... Um, yeah, it was an option. Then we looked at, as I said, two weeks before, but that would mean that we'd have to play you know, midweek games and, and two games in a week, and then you start sort of losing the integrity of the competition. Mm. So mm. definitely did look at that Friday night, and um, you know, all of this is, is, again, things that we'll learn from and, and have a look at next year. I mean, uh, if, if you go a Friday night, you're probably going to have to separate um, league from the reserves and, and the Colts and, and have it as a standalone. But, uh, you know, as I said... End of season, we'll review all this and see what is best moving forward. Mm, That's course. definitely a yeah. consideration that we'll take forward. Of course, that AFLW Derby uh, will be interesting is what you were referring to there, uh, Michael. Michael, the 18s finished uh, their championships, only one win. What was the general feeling inside the commission on uh, the youngsters' performances and uh, where they basically, what they got out of it? Yeah, look, I, I think you look at win-loss and there's always a disappointment when... Um, you know, we've got a sort of aim, I guess, to win as many as possible, but at least win 50%. Um, winning one of four, a um, bit, bit disappointing from results, but you know what the boys had to go through, um, I think we travelled more than any other team going into state, then flying back, then going into state again. Um, so it was extremely tough, and we had, uh, I think, eight changes going into the third match, and then, of course, the, the reverse of that eight changes coming into the last match just due to um, illness and uh, or COVID and injury. So... It was a uh, it was a really good effort by the by the team and um, you know it was great to get that final game win at Joondal up against South Australia. Um, you know the the, the uh, talent guys came back after the first game and thought you know we had a really good opportunity against Vic Metro who are probably the strongest and, and to to get some confidence but um, things just didn't go our way there. But uh, overall, I think you know it's all about giving these guys an opportunity to put their name forward and um, and showcase what they could do and. Um, you know, hopefully they, they felt they did that. We've now got a few games of uh, remaining for the Colts season, so uh, you know some of those guys can continue to press to uh, get drafted, hopefully, at the end of the year. I'll come back to you because uh, you've got a bit of Tasmanian blood in you. I want to ask you about uh, Tasmania and the AFL before I let you go, but I need to ask you about the Perth Football Club and West Coast. Now, when I was growing up, Perth were just such a powerful WAFL club. 
And they haven't, of course, won a premiership since 1977. And they continue to languish in the lower echelons of the WAFL. A strong Perth football club would meet a strong WAFL competition. Can I ask you where Perth sit at the moment and whether West Coast has in any way enhanced the competition? Because as we know, last pre-season, there was conjecture whether they would field a side or not. Your thoughts on those two additions to the waffle competition? Yeah, look, Perth, I think it's probably, um, it's funny, in my 18 months, I think Perth's waffle team has been used as the barometer of whether the competition is um, competitive or, or even. Um, and, yeah, as you know, Peter, it is, as you said, you know, they haven't uh, won a flag since uh, 1970, and they've been probably missing from finals for, for a while as well, uh, other than the COVID year. Um it's something that we we constantly talk about, you know, um, boundaries and and points and um, things like that. So we have mechanisms in place to try and present an even competition and uh, the boundaries of where players um, or where clubs get their talent pools from is is a big one. Um, We know that Perth has a challenging um, pool in regions, in the regional areas there, uh, I guess the population of of where they have is, is is declining, um, so it is something that we look at, but also in a metro area. Um, and then the other mechanisms that we have in terms of points and, and salary cap and transfer fees, etc., are things that we're constantly reviewing. So we do sort of use, I guess, Perth as, as the barometer to see how we're going. And, um, you know, Perth will put their hand up and say there's a few decisions that they've made that probably haven't helped, but, uh, you know, we're, we're in this as a competition and we need to help each other and we need to do what is right for the competition to make it as even as possible um, to present a good, uh, I guess, spectacle for, for fans. But at the same time, we don't want to sort of punish the, the top performers to bring them down to a um, to make things even. So it is, as I say, it's probably not a not a straightforward answer, but um, a competitiveness of all of our teams is something that we're constantly mm. monitoring. Um, and then that leads into the West Coast situation, which, uh, you know, in the, the two seasons that I've been involved is, is really difficult to use as um, as a benchmark to say, well, this is what West Coast is because um, in both of those years, they um, committed to the season late and, and that's through no fault of, of their own. Um, I think this year they were going down the track of, of an alignment until the very last minute where, when it uh, wasn't to be. Um, so they just didn't have that opportunity to recruit and they lost some of their key players themselves. Uh, and then added to that is obviously their uh, their injuries and um, and illnesses that they've had from an AFL level. So you know having no listed players playing in a, in your waffle team or, or a handful is not going to be successful or not going to give them the success that they need. Yet you know when they can put 12, 13 on the park and bring back one of their experienced in in Nat Nui, they can um, you know beat a flag contender in um, in South Fremantle. So. We need to get the mix right for them. Uh, we need to give them a bit of uh, you know, certainty moving forward and, and agree to that, uh, which we have now. So hopefully we just get that, that points balance right to enable them to um, have a good core of players that uh, you know, they can bring back their AFL-listed players and, and be competitive. And uh, again, it's something that we'll be working on um, in the off-season to make sure that we're right mm. for 2023. And just finally, very quickly, Michael, I need to ask you, of course, I think born and bred in Tasmania there and you're involved with the Hobart Hurricanes as the general manager with uh, Tennis Tasmania as well. Uh, AFL, do they need to get it in there pretty quickly? Because everybody reckons the longer they uh, stay out of uh, Tasmania, the AFL, the more they'll lose young people to other sports. 
Yeah, look, um, I will say that I'll, I'm not born and bred, so because it seems to be only the people who are born and bred are saying that they should. Uh, should <laughs> Where were you I born? I'm a Victorian. Oh, you're I'm Victorian. Victorian. Oh, but, bad uh, luck. Yeah, but, uh, but look, oh, I think it's I think it's a challenge getting uh, getting an AFL team in there. I think um, you know people compare it to Geelong, but uh, Hobart's got 250,000 people. Um, you know, I, I think. There are other mechanisms to, to grow sport at grassroots level rather than having to spend all that money on an AFL team. And, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be a little concerned for player welfare uh, down there and trying to keep players in there. It's, it's extremely cold in winter. And, mm. uh, you know, as you say, I was with the Hurricanes. And we're a summer sport and, and a beanie was still part of our uh, staple <laughs> uniform. So uh, I, I think there might be a, a few of the players that uh, just might be down there for short periods of time and, and they'd have a, a bit of effort uh, retaining teams. But, uh, yeah, that, that'll all play out in the next month or so. Well, apologies. I thought you were actually a Tasmanian. You were in some ways. You spent a few years down there, but born in Victoria. Good on you, Michael. Thanks for joining us, and, mate, we'll keep in touch. Thanks for sort of shedding some light on where some of the major issues are at. Great. Thanks a lot, Peter. Good on you. Michael Roberts joining us here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. Toolmark, your complete tool centre. Proudly WA-owned and operated for over 40 years. Yes, on the Tempera Bedshed text line, which is 0487 736 736. Norman Kalgoorlie says, Peter, I think every 2020 cricketing nation could have their own comp. I just think they should condense it. The BBL runs too long. And if you made it that uh, the teams play four games in a week, they could play 16 games in four weeks, then the finals in the fifth week, allowing plenty of summer left for other competitions. Good on you, Norm. Uh, you've done your maths and you've uh, crunched the numbers and you've come up with that, which uh, sounds pretty good to me. Uh, hi, Pete. This is from Mike at Palmyra. Great show as always. Does Aish go to Clayton Oliver again on Friday night? Well, he did the job, didn't he, at the MCG? And uh, why wouldn't you? It's going to be wet, which is going to make the ball on the ground quite a bit. I saw Clayton Oliver uh, in the game against the Western Bulldogs last weekend. I'm going through it actually in preparation for the game on Friday night. And he looked pretty clean. He looked like uh, he was back with his mojo, of course, after missing uh, a bit of footy with that uh, wrist injury. So good on you, uh, Mikey. I think certainly Aishi's done the job on Oliver again. Why wouldn't you uh, put him back on as well? All right. Now, Australian cricket great and fierce North Melbourne supporter Ricky Ponting will meet with Alistair Clarkson this week in a bid to convince the four-time premiership mentor to be the Kangaroos' next senior coach. Hopefully I'll catch up with him this week, Al. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I can sit down with him. If you think about where the Kangaroos are at, you know, if it's a seven-year rebuild, he's been there and done it and, and got a, a few premierships along the way, so there's a, it, it'd be a perfect fit, I think, for the football. There you go, punter. Uh, we always know he's a big uh, Kangaroo supporter. It comes as Clarkson's manager, James Henderson, did confirm he'd met with the Kangaroos in Hobart on the weekend. And, of course, the Commonwealth Games that get underway on Friday, a whopping 435 athletes will represent Australia at this year's Com Games in Birmingham. 76 para-athletes, eight guides, and 351 able-bodied athletes. When you uh, add it all together, it's a lot of life experience. But when you break it down, some of our competitors have a little more than others. There's almost 50 years separating the oldest and the youngest Australian athletes heading to Birmingham. 63-year-old Cheryl Linfield and 14-year-old Charlie Petrov 
are both making their Commonwealth Games debuts. Petrov will be the youngest athlete to don the green and gold in the diving, the 10-metre platform. And Linfield is set to make her Commonwealth Games debut with bowls partner Serena Bennell in the B6-B8 women's pairs. Congratulations to both of them. And we'll be right across the Commonwealth Games here on Drive with Peter Vlahos. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Lee. I'll be back again with Footy Selection Night tomorrow night from 5 right here on SENWA.